Welcome to episode 39 of Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible, which is another very special episode here on the podcast. It's sort of the special Christmas in September episode (laughs) as we get to the beginning of the New Testament and the story of Jesus's life as told in the four Gospels. So there's two senses of the word gospel. There's the thing that we mean when we're like talking about sharing the good news of what has happened. Is that the same as what these first four books are, or is there a distinction there, or why do we call these first four books of the Bible, the, Ooh, or the New Testament, question. the Gospels? So the reason they're called the Gospels is that within them we find the telling of the story that is the Gospel. Gospel meaning good news, right? They're basically ancient biographies, each of the four. Not about the beginning of Jesus' life all the way to the end with equal detail at every point like a modern biography might, but telling the important moments of the figure that is the primary subject of the biographies, Jesus Christ. And so his death and resurrection, his life, death, and resurrection are what we what we call the gospel or make up events surrounding what we call the gospel. And since that story is told in these four books, we have called them the Gospels. Why are there four of them? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, So we get four different perspectives from each of them. And so basically, I think the answer to why are there four of them is that the Holy Spirit led four apostles or people connected to apostles to write down the stories about Jesus. It's not as though someone went around collecting four versions editing them slightly, or that there were more written by the apostles or people connected to the apostles that were rejected. These are the four with what we call apostolic authority. Hmm. And the benefit of them is that they each tell the story differently with different focuses and emphases. And I think that that's beautiful. Um, Would you like to talk a little bit about the differences between some of them? Well, so just to clarify, I mean, yes, ultimately the Holy Spirit is the agent and architect of scripture. So it's Mm -hmm. his decision, you know, that there's four, but just on a historical level, like you said, it's not like no one, it, it wasn't like they started out with saying we need to come up with four different perspectives. It's just kind of as the development of the early church and these Jesus communities that these were sort of the four uh, accounts or four versions that that gained traction that were recognized as being inspired um, and so it's sort of just that again just on a merely historical level it's just these are the four that so happened to kind of rise to prominence yes again we know theologically that the holy spirit's behind those things yeah you know the different emphases uh and i one of the things I was about to ask, but I'll just briefly, quickly explain it here, is that among the four Gospels, there are some internal dynamics or, or reliances mm-hmm. that we have detected kind of in just the historical literary study of them. And so John is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you've ever read any of them, you probably already know that, but you'll just be struck by that even more so in these readings, kind of going back and forth between them. That John is very much still telling the story of God's rescue in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but definitely in kind of a different key, mm-hmm. whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke are much closer and, in fact, uh, use a lot of the same material, Yes, which is why we call the first three the synoptic gospels, which is a Greek word that I believe means something like same view or yes. same perspective, same vision, you know. So they're all obviously still different, but 
kind of in the same vein, whereas John is is quite different. And like I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there is some shared, and you'll notice this as we go through the readings, that some of the stories are verbatim repeated, you know. Yeah. 90% of Mark is in Matthew. Right. So a lot, you know, and, and so we generally think that Mark was the earliest one. Yes, that yeah, is that today first. the generally accepted view. The ancient view is that Matthew came that Matthew first. was the first one, um, and that so that but but as you just referenced, there's a lot of reliance between those two mm-hmm. that either Mark took everything or a lot of what he says from Matthew, or that Matthew took all you know. Yeah, and I think that well anyway. So there's that that internal, and then Luke has its own thing. But then Matthew and Luke also contain things that are unique to them, mm-hmm. and we get some of those right off the bat with the the Christmas story, what we call the Christmas story, mm-hmm. and kind of the the story of Jesus' birth. And there are other things as well. I think in terms of emphasis, and you can fill fill in or, or correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe at like the high the highest you know uh, altitude, looking at them. That Matthew seems to be emphasizing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he's the end of the story, or the, I shouldn't say the end, the culmination, the climax of the story that the Old Testament has been telling. And we get Old Testament references in all the Gospels, but there's a lot of them in Matthew. Yeah, most in Matthew. Um, And, uh, you know, it starts with the genealogy, which I was going to ask about here in a minute, which connects us back to the Old Testament story. And so very much Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the story. Mark, I think, complements that and emphasizes a bit more Jesus as the coming of the kingdom of God and the clash against the the kingdom of the evil one. You know, and we preached on Mark a few years ago. And we we use the phrase the clash of kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And so Mark kind of very much highlights demonic possession, exorcism, you mm-hmm. know, the friction with the Roman Empire, like just kind of this you know, Jesus Jesus in confrontation kind of seems yeah. to be Mark's emphasis. Luke, which is the only gospel written by a Gentile, uh, Dr. Luke, right? He was a Gentile mm-hmm. person. So a little bit of a different emphasis that Jesus is everybody's Messiah, not just the Jewish people's Messiah, and especially the Messiah of the least, the lost, and those on the edge. And so you'll see a lot of stories in Luke about Jesus's interactions with those that, that sort of uh, mainstream Judean society would reject or push to the side or, or not want anything to do with. And we just see Jesus repeatedly wanting to bring them in and and, uh, and include them. We know that Luke and Paul were colleagues, were mm-hmm. friends, were pretty close. And so I think you can definitely tell kind of a mutual effect there that the way that Paul thinks about the gospel working out in these early churches is definitely kind of the continuation of, of Luke's story. But then you can also see some of Paul's teaching kind of filter in back into the way that Luke tells the story. I mean, I think, I believe, I, I might be wrong, but I think Luke's gospel is the only one that, that uses the word justified or justification. Is that right? In Jesus' I don't know parable? the answer to that, yeah. We'll have to Google that. But I'm pretty sure it's the one time that, that actually is said in the gospels. And so, I mean, Paul obviously talked a lot about that and and that. I mean, justification is is a big suitcase full of a lot of things, but that, that at least part of what that means is who is included in God's people, who's included in God's family. And then John, I think, includes all of those other emphases, but then also highlights just that Jesus is, I think, the savior of the world, that Jesus is, Jesus represents sort of the the healing of the entire cosmos, you know, like this universal scope of redemption. He uses the word cosmos, translated world, quite a lot in the gospel. It starts with kind of this this pre-time prologue in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so John just seems to take a much more 
just big. <laughs> it's just this bigger kind of cosmic scope. Um, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. The, yeah. That those those be those would be my yeah, my, my elevator explanation for the differences between the gospels. Well, the the thing that each gospel is trying to do in its own way is show. So we've just read the Old Testament. A lot of the times when people come to the the gospels, they come without the Old Testament in mind, which is a shame. I think one of the benefits of us reading chronologically is that we should be coming to the Gospels with the Old Testament in mind. And each of the Gospels has the Old Testament in mind. And they are each trying to show how Jesus is the King and Messiah of the, that has been promised. And they do that in different ways. One of the reasons why Matthew is first is, again, the, in, the, in the canon, is the ancients thought that it was written first. Um, mostly because Mark, which they thought was written second, was subtler. And Mark, to really get what Mark is trying to tell you, you have to sit with it. And and he's not overt. His Old Testament references, for example, they they are not um, easy to, they're not always easy to spot. And they kind of make you think about it. He'll, he'll quote a lot of a chapter that he means for you to understand or remember something that's later in the chapter than the quotation. He wants mm-hmm. you to to think the on The whole it. context, not just the yes. particular line. And so in our current mode of thinking, if a thing is simpler and less clear, we tend to think it's like a rough draft. Mm-hmm. And if a thing is more clear and more overt, we feel like that's the polished later version. And so that's why we tend to think Mark is first and Matthew is second. The ancient world, in I mean, among the, the Greek church fathers, they had the opposite view. If something was overt and too clear and didn't require you to think a lot and, and meditate on, um, then it, it was first, and the more advanced version was what came second. I tend to think Mark was written first. But in Matthew, you find these explicit, he tells you, this is what's happening and this is right, why. Right. Over and over and over again, Matthew comes out and just tells us, this is for this reason. This is because of this. This is what Jesus was doing. And we don't see that in Mark. In Mark, you're left mm-hmm. to figure that out. And he expects you to know your Old Testament really well. Um, I find Mark to be, as I get older and I know my Bible better, I find more and more joy and value. The way Mark folds stories together and they comment on one another, it's it's truly masterful. It's just very subtle. Mm-hmm. In Luke, you, you, oh, and in Matthew too, you have this emphasis on like a new law, right? So mm-hmm. Jesus says, Moses come back, right? We get the Sermon on the Mount. We get things like that. Um in Luke, you get a, he's, he's pretty universally thought to be the best writer and storyteller of the, the four evangelists. Um, you just get this continuation of the Old Testament story. A lot of times you get these pictures of things that feel Old Testamenty, just kind of happening around what's happening with Jesus. And the idea that Luke is trying to tell you is that this is the continuation of the Old Testament. There hasn't been, there isn't a split. This isn't a new story. It's a continuation of the old story and the fulfillment of it, the culmination of it. And then in John, you get these word pictures. He loves the the pictures. He doesn't tell you, he does sometimes tells you what he's trying to tell you. But what he prefers to do is he draws you into this image or this picture of what's happening and wants you to sit in it and think on it and be moved mm-hmm. by it. And And that's one of the reasons why John is so popular it's a very visual gospel Mm -hmm. and we like visual things Mm -hmm. Um, but every story in there can be meditated on and benefited from and it seems to just be drawing a lot from kind of the not any particular like prophetic uh tradition of the old Mm -hmm. testament but just kind of that mode of visualization and even i think 
in in many ways the wisdom books of like well, the song of songs or some of these other books that are yeah. heavy on the allegory and kind of the visual well, presentation. one of the things we know about jesus from the gospels is that he loved metaphor he was mm-hmm. a metaphorical theologian he used metaphor all the time John is the only one of the four Gospels that leans as heavily on metaphor mm-hmm. as Jesus does. It seems like John the Apostle inherited that from Jesus, who was mm-hmm. his rabbi, which makes sense, right? Yeah. Mark and Luke were not direct students of Jesus. Matthew seems to be much more um, on the nose with his, with his writing. But John really does seem to capture that. The way that Jesus speaks, and you have to really think on it a lot of the time. And the more mm-hmm. you think on it, the more you're rewarded. Uh, John writes that way, too, in his letters as well as in his gospel. Hmm. Yeah. But he, he quotes the Old Testament like a third as often as Mark. And Mark is the the least among the synoptics to quote mm-hmm. the, the Old Testament. It's not a... But but the connections are just as fluent. He just does it with right. word pictures rather right. than, rather than, than quotations. quotes. Yeah. But what's sad is because we know our Old Testament so little, we catch them a lot of the times in John because mm-hmm. it's this big ornate picture that's being drawn. But we miss the quotations and everything if there isn't a specific sentence telling us this is, you know, referring to the Old Testament. Right then we miss it. Because sometimes it would be turns of phrase or, or other things that yeah. aren't even necessarily what we would consider to be a complete quote. Sure. It's really more of a reference, but it's still playing the yeah. same role of, of hooking us back into exactly. that. You'll get seven Old or nine Testament words passage. of a of a story in Matthew or Mark that are exactly the first seven to nine words mm-hmm. of a very popular Old Testament story at the time. And we see that in John, right? In the beginning was the word, right? right? We know John is telling us to look at Genesis 1. Right. Um, but we know Genesis 1 really well, so we catch it. Yeah. That kind of thing happens over and over again in the mm-hmm. Gospels. And it's just usually missed, which is mm-hmm. sad. Even your Bible that references things will miss a lot of them. Well, because... yeah. I mean, it's sad, but also like, you know, we just keep at it. Yeah, we, <laughs> we do. keep reading we keep and rereading, it. and and we catch, I think, more and more of those things as we go, and and that's fine. I mean, I think that it's just it's it's a testament to, it's a testament to, I think, the the sophistication and the intricacy of these things, you know. And I don't think that in itself is an argument for divine inspiration, because I mean, people are amazing, and so I mean, mm-hmm. they really can, you know, do these things. But I think that it just goes to show you that it's not like these things were just haphazardly written, you know, like they were intentionally crafted, you know, um, and and for us as readers then to try and not just, you know, any particular passage to skim over it and go, okay, what is the point? And I'm not denying that they have particular points to make, but just that there may be more than one <laughs> or they there it may be it may be presenting a point to you but actually to make you sit back and go well i don't know if that's actually true <laughs> you know and, and it's just it could be playing uh multi multi-dimensional chess you know and i think that 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 uh i have a couple comments based off that one maybe we can just clarify who traditionally these men were who authored the gospels yeah um, that they're assigned to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. None of the, besides Luke, or no, Luke doesn't actually name its author either. None of them actually say this is by so-and-so. Right. Um, those are just the traditional. And I yes. think, for, I mean, I, I. For good reason. I, yeah. And there's, there's solid reasons that Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, the tax collector, uh, whose own calling is included in in the stories that we read uh, this next week. Mark was a disciple of Peter, Peter. or connected to Peter. And so, so it's Peter's preaching. Yeah. So it. it's we can we can kind of see it as Peter's gospel, even though maybe Mark was the one. And I think that they 
there's some connection that maybe Mark was sort of in the second set of like the larger group of disciples. Like he was around mm. occasionally. Well, yeah, because like they think he might have been, or even that I think isn't church tradition that he's the young man in the garden that the guards yes. grab and they take his cloak and then he runs off basically naked. Yeah. yeah. So there's no scriptural support for that, but that's the tradition that that Mark was present. Wouldn't you for love some of those things to be when people are like, "What do we know about this guy? This author <laughs> of one of the gospels? Well, he had to run naked through a garden once." <laughs> While Jesus was being arrested, Luke, and we already we already said this that Luke was a colleague of Paul's, um, potentially a convert of Paul's. I don't know if we know. I don't know if we know that uh, how Luke came to faith, but he was a Gentile. Uh, doctor. Do we need to tell what a Gentile is? Oh. It's it's really used a lot more in the New Testament. We don't. That's true. Talk a non-Jewish it. person. Yeah, I mean, we've non-Jewish used the word person. before, but yeah, you're right. A non-Jewish person outside the covenant, um, a covenant outsider. And then John was also one of Jesus's primary disciples. So there, Peter, James, and John were kind of the the, the inner uh, circle, the chief, <laughs> the chief disciples. And then the other, what's twelve minus three? Nine. Then the other nine were kind of on another. Uh... Bible college doesn't have math classes. So... <laughs> I never went. To oh, Bible he, you college. never went. <laughs> so you didn't even get that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so those those are the men who who uh, traditionally that right. the Gospels are linked to. Um, and all right, one more kind of question before we we maybe get into some thoughts and comments about our actual passages. So some of our people, I mean, and we've, we've, we have, uh, we have merely tapped on some like documentary history things as we've gone through the old Testament, just because that's not really the focus of this program. And we know that there's like three other people that get as excited about it as you and I, (laughs) (laughs) Uh Um, but it is, I think, occasionally just worth it to to kind of open it up a little bit. And so there is some, and you referenced this earlier when we were talking about why are there four of them. I mean, that we know that there were other kind of stories of Jesus or stories about Jesus that were in the air. Excuse me. Uh, not so much maybe back when the, these Gospels being written, but certainly a century or so after, you know, and they... They pop up in the news every yeah. 18 months or so. <laughs> some story comes out about some new, you know, gospel of Mary Magdalene. And it turns out that Jesus was actually a horse, you know, or whatever, wow. like just kind of these crazy things. And so if you if we could just just briefly to say, like, what what is that? What's going on with that? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are two kind of categories here, at least two. The earliest quote-unquote gospel that is not in the Bible um, is Thomas. Thomas was probably written um, in the the early 2nd century, about 120 AD, and it's not what's called a Gnostic gospel. So the Gnostics were this kind of, um, this religion that came up alongside Christianity. It existed before, but it adopted a lot of the language and ideas of Christianity, but it is not Christianity. And the other Gospels all fall into that category. Thomas is its own thing. In fact, it may have included at one time just sayings of Jesus quoted by the Apostle Thomas, but then added to. And we know it was added to because some of the things in it are crazy. (laughs) Um, Jesus is, it ends with Jesus telling Mary, or telling Peter not to be worried about him kissing Mary Magdalene because he's going to turn her into a man, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's. And that you have to become a and man. And you have to, to become a man to get into heaven. heaven. Yeah. Like that. I mean, the rest of the gospel, oh, there's times in it that's, that that you read something and you're like, that's not in any of the other gospels, but it, but sounds, it sounds like, like Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. 
And it might be like there might actually be real things Jesus said in that gospel that are not in the others. We don't trust the things in that gospel because it also contains crazy things. And so we don't know what we can trust and what we don't. It's an interesting read if you want to read it. Mm -hmm. Just don't don't treat it like one of the four. Mm -hmm. But early Christians really wrestled with Thomas. Is it in or is it out? Um, In fact, some of the early putting together of the the New Testament had Thomas listed. Mm -hmm. The church as a whole decided this does not work. Um, but then you get other things. There's the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Mary. You get you get the cross talking. You get mm-hmm. Jesus turning people into pillars of salt as a kid. <laughs> you get all kinds of weird and crazy things happening in them. It's not as though you can read any of these narratives. And Thomas isn't a narrative. It's a list of sayings until yeah, the last few It reads few almost like Proverbs. Right. Yeah. But these other narratives, there's no way you can put them next to the other Gospels and be like, I wonder which one's real. I mean, they just don't sound alike at all. And that's because they were written hundreds of years later with different priorities. And and that's comforting in a way. They're interesting. But they are, they are Gnostic in origin. They're trying to say things that we do not believe are true. And they're, they're trying to make Jesus into this ideal of theirs, which is so spiritual, he's almost disconnected from the physical world. Mm-hmm. And that's just not what the Bible tells us. In fact, that can be a problem in evangelical circles. We can lean that way, thinking that like the only important parts of, of life and Jesus are the spiritual things and the physical right. ones don't matter. Right. It's a very Gnostic idea. Or that he's trying to rescue us from the prison of our yes. physicality. Yeah. If, it, or the temptations of our physicality. Yes, yeah. there's some hymns we sing that I listen to and I'm like, oof. Yeah, there's it's there's it's a reason tough. why Gnosticism has been so seductive. Yeah, for two thousand years, because <laughs> who doesn't want to be spiritual, right? Right. But like, that's not what that means in the Gospels, and so mm-hmm. it's it's that's what's going on with the other Gospels. Um, I have a bunch of them. If anyone is like dying of curiosity. And you want to read some of them, you can. I'll just make you have a conversation with me beforehand so we make sure there's no misunderstandings. You can find them online, too. They're all they're all open source at this point, I think. Yeah, and so they're, sure they're available are. on yeah. Google. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I think this is not true for Thomas, but for a lot of these others, they were lost to history for a long, long time. And then found one Until someone managed to step in a very significant hole in Egypt <laughs> and found, literally, that's how it happened, and found these... They were, they, we think, I think the best guess is that someone had been ordered to destroy them and instead they had buried them in this hole in the ground. And then for, you know, 1800 years, it sat there until someone else came along and found it, which is a fascinating story. I mean, that's a fun documentary story, but it's just too bad they didn't burn them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Well, it tells us what, what, what the Gnostics believed, but there have been a lot. The most recent one was the gospel of Judas. Mm -hmm. I think it was the most recently discovered one. And it was in the news now. What was Mm -hmm. it? 15 years ago. You probably saw things about it. And all these people saying, now we know what Judas Iscariot had to say. No, we don't. This was written centuries later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You have, you brought some books today. Did we have some book? Gospel book recommendations for the people? Oh, no, these I was reading while oh. I was waiting for you. Well, do we have any gospel book just about the gospels Ooh. or just about the... Well, yeah, at different levels here. I would, if you want a good read that it's not challenging as in it, it's above, like it's not above high school reading level. It's just, it's just really thoughtful and it's a little long. 
um, would be, um, oh gosh, what's it called? It's N.T. Wright's book on the four gospels. It's, um, how God became king. Yeah. How God became king. That was, that was one of my recommendations. Um, I, I really, really love that one. Um, I'm a big N.T. Wright fan. Ben is too. You'll probably hear us refer to him several times now that we're in the new Testament. Um, there's another book he wrote called simply Jesus that Mm -hmm. if you're interested Mm -hmm. in kind of a historical view of what was happening at the time and how that points to points to Jesus, um, those two books together are just phenomenal. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's one, it's, it's really more of a textbook, but, uh, four portraits. Yeah. Four portraits, one Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've got that. I'm sure you do too. Well, I actually that became the Lincoln Christian go-to book after I was uh, oh. no longer taking. Well, I have a copy of it. <laughs> it's more of a reference, you know. Like it's that's not one you're going to read. I mean, you're free to read it straight through, but I yeah. think that's more of. of I just do a like. I mean, commentary. I've got an introduction to the New Testament by D. A. Carson and Douglas Moo, um, who are two scholars that um, I I trust most of the time. Uh, Moo more than Carson, but I have thoughts about that, and that's fine. This book is excellent. Um, and then there's actually these little books called the New Testament for Everyone that I just can't also recommend by NT right, but they're also by NT right. <laughs> but they are as easily accessible as you can get. If and you have a commentaries, book, yes. Yeah. So what you get is a little bit of the New Testament, and then he gives you thoughts on it, and it's just so easy to read, and it's it's just very 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 good. I check them usually anytime I'm going to preach on a New Testament text because his examples are just so helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the only other one I would recommend, and we might, our next, uh, the winter small group might be based on this book anyway, but it's called Life in Year One. And it's not specifically a, you know, a gospel book, but it's just more of just kind of laying out in layman's terms, just some of the social, political, geographical information about uh, Palestine at this point. I've always found it to be very helpful and funny, but just, you know, it just helps the the, the author synthesizes, I think, a mm-hmm. lot of of uh, scholarly information in a way that, that helps us understand, you know, and, and just relate it to our own life of like, oh, okay, I can see that's not my culture, but I can understand why, I can understand why, you know, that things yeah. were kind of happening that way. And as we get further in the Gospels and we get to like the crucifixion and resurrection, there will be other book recommendations. Any other just sort of here at the beginning of the Gospels, like general reading, absorbing, eating the, the Gospel thoughts that, uh, that we might have? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have one while you're thinking, <laughs> unless ahead. you want time to think. No, go ahead. Okay. I, I know what I'm going to say, but go ahead. Oh, well, then you can no, go. you go ahead. I'm All right. Gonna so the thing I would say is, and I think Pastor Clinton kind of alluded to this already a couple of times, but, you know, the, our opening question, like, is there a distinction between, like, gospel in terms of, like, the thing you share when you tell someone about Jesus and then these stories and my, I mean, I don't think so, ultimately. Obviously, they're in a little bit of a different form. You know, you're not going to sit down, well, maybe maybe you would, but you're not going to sit down with somebody and just start reciting the Gospel of John. <laughs> You'll be there for a while. Um, but that I think that, again, these things are sophisticated, they're intricate, you know, they were they were well-designed and, and well-put together. That I think that in so many of the the stories, this with the scholarly term for which is pericope. Ooh, look at you! <laughs> so, like the little paragraphs as you read, they're split up, you know, and generally those are kind of ancient, anciently recognized. Again, what we call pericopes, or these little mini stories that, in themselves, they're each proclaiming the gospel 
kind of in their in a different way, right? And so when Jesus heals the the leper, I mean, no, he's not dying for the man's sins, but I mean, it's it is teaching us something about what happened when That's Jesus died step. and rose again, or the story, you know, any of the other stories when Jesus multiplies food, which we don't have this week. But I mean, you know, just as it goes along, each one of those little stories is a way of telling the big story. Yes. And so I think that that was insightful for me whenever I learned that, you know, I think in college of just realizing, you know, that there are, I mean, ultimately it is Jesus's death on the cross and his, his rising again three days later that saves us. But there are many ways to talk about that, right? It doesn't always have to be you're an evil sinner that God needed to forgive. That is true. That is part of the truth. But it's also true, excuse me, that we are sick, you know, and dying of a a lethal sin condition and Jesus has to heal us or that we are hungry and empty, you know, hollowed out by sin and oppression and Jesus has to fill us up. You know, like these are also ways of, of thinking about and talking about the good news and that depending on a person's context or even depending on just what's going on in our own lives, right? Different ways of, of thinking about it. Of hearing it, I think will will encourage us, will uh, uh, revivify us. Really, you know, will like put life into us in a different way. And so, I think I would just I would just want to put that out there for everyone of just to not that it's not that that the gospel of Matthew doesn't really get to the gospel until Jesus is arrested. Like, no, everything in he- ahead of that is also the gospel. Yes, that's that's deeply important. Because we can tend to lose track of that. If you if you ask people what's going on in the Gospels, a lot of the time it's he's born, right? He died, right? And now let's talk about the letters of Paul, and that's mm-hmm. not that's not good. Yeah, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. Yeah. Okay, should we talk about some of these stories? Sure. So I think the best way for us to do this, because as we read through them, most of the stories are repeated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then we get John, which has different stories, but some of them are across the board. And so one of the questions I have for you, Pastor Ben, is one of the things all four Gospels talk about are is the baptism of Jesus. And I, I mean, I'd like to hear some thoughts. Why did Jesus need to get baptized? What was going on there? Yeah, I think I would... Uh... I might I might re rephrase that question into why did Jesus want to get baptized because I don't think he needed to get baptized. Okay, sure. Maybe we disagree and if we do we can explore that. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. You know, I think that uh you know, we know generally speaking that first century Jewish people ritually washed you know generally as they were going into the temple we've discovered these baths you know there were several kind of sets of them around the temple precinct that people would stop and they would they would they would wash so they would be clean ritually clean so in order to enter the temple and i think that they found them also in in communities not just in jerusalem so i mean there's some recognition they didn't bathe like we did like to necessarily physically i mean they didn't have again they didn't necessarily have those same distinctions but um, there seems to have been other reasons that would just take place within the villages and towns, maybe festivals or marriages, you know, I don't know, funerals, but just other occasions for which they would need to use one of these ritual baths. Uh, and so I think that John's baptism ministry was kind of an evolution of that idea, you know, so like that was already in everybody's minds that like they need to be washed in order to be ritually pure. And I think that John's innovation which I think came from the Holy Spirit, I think there were really two things, and you can 
fill this in or correct me. One would be that because the kingdom of God was coming, people could be washed one final time and then they were done. They were they were purified in God's sight after that, which was a big change. And then two, that he was not using the man-made mikvot, you know, ritual bathtubs, but he was baptizing in the Jordan River in a sort of direct from God given water source. That was also living water. We know what they called living water, meaning it was flowing. It wasn't just sitting in a in a bathtub. And I think that that also is significant of like, so this baptism from John, and Jesus asked the leaders this later on, well, where did it come from? Did, it, did he just make it up or did it come from God? You know, I think the reason why there was such a popular meaning of the people, like the people responded so strongly to John's message was that because I think that they could that it resonated with them, that like God himself has given us, is going to give us this way to be purified once, and then we're, we're good. Um, and so I think that Jesus comes to John, is baptized by John. You know, I think really it's a confirmation of his message of like, yes, this is true. Uh, I think that Jesus did it in order, I think Jesus did it in terms of that he did everything that people do. Like it was just part of him entering into the real human situation in first century Judea is that he also, you know, submitted himself to this baptism. He didn't need to be, he was already pure. Like there was no, you know, there's no question of that. But I think that God also used the Jesus' baptism as kind of the moment well, <laughs> it's not the moment he became the Messiah. He was always the Messiah. <laughs> there's, been some, there's been some confusion on that point in the history of the church, and it's easy to understand why, because I just backed myself into it. <laughs> uh-huh. He was always the Messiah. You we know, should he get was... a heresy button that we can press on each other. <laughs> Got him! Um, first one to three doesn't have to do the podcast anymore. Uh... <laughs> Ooh. Anyway, but that it was a... I think, a confirmation of who he was, coupled with the temptation. I mean, he's driven into the wilderness immediately afterwards, where everything Jesus heard while he was baptized is put to the test. Are you really the beloved son of the Father? Um, and so, yeah, I think I think that's, that's what I would say at this point. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so I would agree that Jesus didn't need to get baptized in the way every other human needed to get baptized, right? To become ritually pure, because Jesus, I mean, being the incarnate son of God, Right. Is a, you're a walking purity, right? Yes, yes. But the, I mean, he does say in Matthew that it's necessary for him to get baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah. And what I think he means by that is that for, for our understanding of what Jesus has done for us, he has led the way and we follow in the path that he's made. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Romans even talks about it this way. It's like we're in a city of death and Jesus broke through the wall. Yeah made a hole for us to walk through the same way he did and end up in the city of life. Mm -hmm. He gets baptized because baptism is going to be a part of the entrance to the covenant for the rest of time. He is, he's taking it on himself. So he's leading the way. Also, I think he changes it when he does it because Jesus's baptism was different than John's baptism. Mm -hmm. And meaning baptism done in Jesus's name. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yes. And so the, I think that as he's taking it on, he's making it something new. It's a, it's, it's, it's already full of life and he's vivifying it even further. Right. Um, and that's the kind of symbol that's hard to articulate, but it's a powerful picture. And the mm-hmm. gospels love these kinds of symbols. 
but it also is, I think, proof and evidence that of his humility. What I think is interesting, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, these two are cousins. Mm-hmm. John does not act like he already knows before Jesus shows up that Jesus is the one who he's been waiting for. But it seems very strange that he wouldn't already know that. I mean, his mother surely tells him the story like, hey, when Mary showed up with your cousin who's three months younger than you, you leapt inside my stomach, recognizing Mm -hmm. him for, you know, uh, why do we think that John thought but needed confirmation? Do we think that John and Jesus maybe just didn't really know each other very well after that you picture family reunions as they're the two sitting around most serious about about uh, goodness and faith you'd feel like john would have an inkling before this yeah i mean i have no idea they didn't live in the same place and people didn't travel a super lot so no, it's didn't. quite likely that they this is the first time that they're seeing each other ever well I mean, they we probably john probably thought that jesus like him was destined to be a rabbi mm-hmm. and a religious man well, and I think it's just important for us as well to keep in mind that no one but Jesus understands who and what he is. Yes. <laughs> Completely. Yes. John the Baptist doesn't. Mary doesn't. None of his disciples. I guess the evil spirits. It's Jesus and the evil spirits <laughs> understand who he is and what he's what he's doing. Although I'm not even sure about the that. The evil spirits don't really know yeah, what he's doing. I don't, I don't, I'm he not sure him. about that because I think the devil was actually feeling the situation out in the temptation. Like, I think those were some legitimate questions he was asking. Anyway, because um, he doesn't know everything, you know, and so they have to find things out, you know, in a similar mode to, to us. Um, no, I, yeah, and so I think that maybe... When I, you know, and I, and I, when I said that the baptism was confirmation, you know, I think that, that, I mean, it's, it is for me, it is deeply stimulating devotionally, intellectually to like speculate about Jesus as a person and his interior state. But the Bible does not give us, it gives us a little bit, but it does not give us much insight. And so I think we just want to just be very cautious, you know, keep it in the sort of the fun, isn't it fun to think about, but let's not make doctrinal decisions right. based on our opinions about what Jesus was thinking or feeling at any particular time. Um, but I mean, I think again, he was a real, a real guy. And so real guys need affirmation from time to time, you know? And so I think that it served that purpose for Jesus himself. And I think that for John as well, that John saw something here, heard something, you know, and realized that, that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, did that mean that John automatically understood the whole of it? No, I don't think so. Because again, later on when he's in prison, he doesn't he doesn't seem to be, you know, they don't get it. Nobody gets it, uh, which is one of the things I was going to talk about when we get to the Gospel of John. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I have further, further yeah, thoughts no, about I that. No, I agree. Uh, well, and just that, I guess one of the things you said that Jesus takes something that, that, you know, so John innovated in an already existing ritual and then Jesus sort of not just innovated it, but like resurrected it. Like he, he baptized he it. He messiahed it, you know, so that it's, or fulfilled it, I suppose. I mean, he fulfilled what it was, but we see him do this a couple of times, you know, I mean, he fulfills the Passover meal into what we now call communion, yes. you know, and so... And that goes back to the whole, like, that the, the, the gospel is new, like we do call it the New Testament, but it's not, it is not a total break from what all came before. It's a filling in. Yes. It's a fulfillment of, of what came before. And so I think we see that very much so in the baptism as well. Uh, before we go any further, can we just, can you maybe just tell us a little bit about, like, what, about the name Jesus and what it means and its uh, history? So Ben likes to tease me because I once said in a sermon that every sound in Jesus is wrong. Yeah. Um, 
I've listened to that sermon and I said it softly, but when Ben quotes me, it's like I'm pounding the desk and thundering. Um, what What is happening there is the name of our Savior was Yeshua or Yeshua. Um, and that's the, the name that we call Joshua in the Old Testament. So, you know, Joshua, who was the follower of Moses. We also know we talked about recently Joshua, the high priest near the end of the Old Testament. Um, both times that name shows up, it is representative of a person who is, um, I mean, pure and good, right? Jesus has taken on that tradition. Um, there are a lot of names that have very powerful meanings in the in the New Testament and the Old. And so, I mean, the name Jesus itself is, is important. I mean, it means Savior, like God saving people from sins. But the... I don't know that, how do I put this? That's good, and that tells us something about Jesus. But there are a lot of names that say something similar to that mm-hmm. in the in the Old and New Testament. I think the more important piece of it is the connection to the Old Testament that it represents. Um, and that's that's who Jesus is. That's what his name means. Yeah. Was that what you were looking for? Oh, sure. Yeah, great. Is this one of those you're letting me be wrong moments? No, no. <laughs> okay. Is it all right for us to call him Jesus, even though that wasn't his actual name? And no one in the first century called him that? Yes. <laughs> Brothers and sisters. Does it, he know what we mean when we <laughs> refer to him as Jesus? Okay, we're going to have a conversation. All right, there's certain things that bug me, right? The, the, and where this is coming from, the word Jehovah bugs me. Mm-hmm. Because the name of God is most certain is almost certainly Yahweh. Um, what we call him Yahweh. Jehovah, like Jesus, came from transliterations and even mistaken ones, adding sounds and letters that were not present in the original language. So Jehovah, Jesus, these are not what these names originally sounded like. Every sound in Jesus is wrong in that, like, that's not, none of the sounds we make were part of the original name, right? So should we be calling him Yeshua? Probably. Are we going to? No. Is it okay that we call him Jesus? Yes. Good. I just want to make sure. But stop using Jehovah. It ruins songs. There's really good songs that didn't just use that word over and over again. We sang one on Sunday. We did. Ben wanted to get this reaction out of me and he got it. So you're welcome. Well, I think it's just, I think it's the people should know. And I think, but I will also say, and really why I think that God is at peace with us using potentially wrong names is that I think that it speaks to, it speaks to the expansion of the covenant, honestly, you know, that it's like, well, we don't all speak Hebrew, you know, and, and so I think it's okay. We're not reading the Bible in Greek. You know, and I think that that's, that doesn't mean that we're not reading the Bible like it is the Bible. We don't say, you know, oh, it's not really in the New Testament. It's a translation. It is, but we believe that God still speaks through our English yeah. words, you know. And I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I agree think with you're right. You've said. I think that it's fine for us to use it. I think that the Germans who came up with the word Jesus rather than Yeshua, <laughs> they may have some answering to do in the kingdom. Well, It's sort of like, you know, I've spent time with Chinese and, you know, international people in my life, and often they don't pronounce my name right, just like I don't pronounce their name right. (laughs) But it almost becomes a symbol of our friendship that, like, the particular way that a Chinese friend mispronounced my name, it's like the special thing that I share with them. (laughs) Yeah, but what word are they mispronouncing when they talk about Jesus? (laughs) 
they're mispronouncing a mispronunciation of the word. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know, so I, I I wonder if it may be something similar with God. That I'm sure that it is. That, He's fine. He's not mad. A, I'm more wound you know. up about it than our Lord is. Yes. Uh, so there's a couple groups here mentioned in Matthew that I think it'd be good for us to just briefly comment Ooh. on. So Jesus and the, the Holy Family is visited by the Magi. And I want you to tell us who they were <laughs> specifically. Phil, Roy, and Joe. <laughs> <laughs> well, in church tradition, they do actually have names. They do, and I don't know them. But... Balthazar. Oh, do I know them all? Balthazar, Casper, and Melchior. Oh, look, look it up. You. Look it up. Yeah. That probably was not their names. <laughs> also, the Bible doesn't ever say there were just three of them. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But church tradition does tell us. Um, so, so who are these? These are wise men from the East. Some, your Bible probably calls them Magi or might call them Magi. And what they were, were astrologers from the East. People that believed that the heavens had a, a, not a power over, although they probably believed that too, events on earth, but could tell you about events on earth. What's really interesting is there's been some studies done about what the sky would have looked like around this time. And there were some weird astrological things happening. So much so that these... Astronomical. Three, astronomical. I said astrological and I meant astronomical. They're not the same thing. Uh, <laughs> that was a heresy <laughs> <Dang> buzzer. <laughs> Two more! Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, there. I mean, these men came all the way from, I mean, a long way to Herod. Um, who was the king of the Jews, right? And we can understand why they came to him because they had seen a sign in the sky that told them that a new king was being born of right. the Jews. Herod, interestingly, at the end of his life, um, he's sick at this point. He's elderly. There's been terrible um, drama in his family. He's surviving assassination attempts. He is paranoid beyond belief. So when he hears these men say there's a new king and, and he's, hey, let me know where. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know how that turns out. But that's that's who these men are. Their tradition tells us that they were each kings of different nations. Mm-hmm. And that may be. We don't know that. Um, and the word king then was just more fluid than it is now. So even early sources will use the word king. But we don't know that that means what we think of mm-hmm. as a king. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just powerful, respected men who and brought very gifts with them so the assumption is that these would be gentiles gentiles oh yes absolutely okay and yeah i think the only thing i would add to that is that i think the presumption is that like talking about wise men from the east would put us coming off the old testament in mind of babylon Mm -hmm. and the magicians you know the chaldeans and all these other things and so i don't think matthew doesn't come out and tell us this but I think it's a healthy assumption to make that like these are Babylonian wizards, <laughs> Babylonian magicians coming to pay homage to the king of the Jews. And again, coming off of what we've just been reading in the Old Testament, it's like, huh, that's a, quite a reversal. <laughs> Something quite amazing must be happening. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I can agree with that. <laughs> you mentioned Herod. Oh. Herod the Great deserves oh, just the Great. a few minutes of wasn't of he great acknowledgement. <laughs> so Ben actually told us last week, kind of set us up for the um, for the situation, the world situation in which Jesus was born. Herod is a young man of like twenty five when his father 
um, is able to, with the help of um, of Pompey, the Roman general, yeah, the Roman general, um, defeat the Hasmonean dynasty, which Ben told us a little bit about last week, and uh, the father, Hyrcanus, Her- I think the second. Uh, that Herod's might be wrong. father? Yes. I think it's no, Hyrcanus. No, I don't remember. It's not Hyrcanus. I think... Herod the Great's father? Maybe. I just read a whole book about the Herods. <laughs> well, there's a lot. It's like a... There is a lot. It needed a chart. Because <laughs> a lot of the characters have the same name. I thought it was like Antipater. It is Antipater. Okay. That's what just popped in my brain. <laughs> Hyrcanus is a um, family member, but not, yeah. uh, not father. And there Anyways. are several Hyrcanuses. Yes, there yeah. were. <laughs> so, um, but the the... This man becomes, Hyrcanus becomes high priest, if, if memory serves, but he lets his family take these positions of power and ask for them to be governors over different areas. Inheritance starts as like a governor over Galilee, and he's shown to be a very competent leader. Mm-hmm. And by competent, we mean he, with prejudice, puts down revolts very there's a, violently. There's a lot of bandits up in them there hills. There are a lot of bandits, but it's not just bandits that he's putting down. I think that's how it starts, but he puts down revolts by the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. Um, We mentioned last week, too, that there were a lot of those happening. They thought that they were in the Messianic age. And so they they were right. And they were right. But they kept thinking (laughs) that meant Rome was going to be thrown off. And so they revolted again and again. So Herod, he, he does this thing where he both gets in trouble with the methods he uses and also earns favor of those above him because of what he accomplishes. And so he gets put on trial some half dozen times in his life, but there's always a more powerful person who's secretly happy with the things that he's mm-hmm. doing that gets him out of trouble. And he gets bounced around a little bit with where he's at. He ends up in Syria when um, uh, Brutus and Cassius, who who killed Caesar, Cassius retreats to Syria and takes over um, and uses Herod's skill to make money and promises to make him king after he defeats this young man named Octavius. Well, that does not go well. Cassius is killed, but but Herod goes to Octavius very wisely with a whole lot, like a whole lot of money and gifts for him and Antony and gets made king of Judea. And he survives intrigue after intrigue. There are very few rulers at his level that last as long as he did. Because he he has the ability to detect who's going to win a conflict. He was very clever and very wily. And very wily. He married 10 women. And so there were a lot of sons and the succession stuff was a nightmare. And he was paranoid about his sons trying to kill him. And he was right several times. Uh, They also made a, a job out of like telling him about assassination plots that may or may not have been true that the other ones were doing. It was... Like, it is surprising to me that an HBO show has not yet been made because the material is there. It's true. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And so Herod, he re- he reigned for 50 years, 40 Ish, years. Like a, a long, long time. time. And 4 BC, maybe? Is yeah. When he the family is ethnically uh, Udemean, which is the first century way of saying Edom. So these are Esau people that have come to rule over Judea. And I think that's... That's just worth pointing out, kind of the the ancient enmities or the ancient dynamics there. Uh, Esau has finally gained the upper hand um, over Jacob. And Herod was also responsible for a lot of building projects. And so he he built up whole cities basically out of nothing. But then he also was responsible for a gigantic expansion and and aggrandizement of the temple in Jerusalem. 
you know, so we'd reference with Ezra and Nehemiah, they built sort of this little piddling like shed, you know, that made the old folks cry because it was just so lousy. And Herod spruced and, and it up. And Herod really, truly. So by the time that Jesus and his disciples are there and they're like, Master, look at these gigantic stones. That's not what Ezra and Nehemiah <laughs> no, and Zerubbabel did. That's what Herod did. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so he, yeah, he turned the temple in Jerusalem into, I mean, one of the wonders of the ancient world, really. I mean, it was a, it was a gorgeous, gigantic white stone building. So in Matthew 3, we see a couple of other groups mentioned that I think it'd be good to explain briefly, specifically the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So to put it, I think, simply, and Pastor Clayton can can uh, cringe and correct <laughs> as you see fit, but that generally speaking, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious groups of, of religious leadership in Judea and Galilee. The Sadducees were generally the wealthier, hoitier, toitier, and they almost all lived in Jerusalem. And so you really don't encounter them until Jesus is down and around Jerusalem, which is where John was baptizing. Whereas the Pharisees seem to have been more poorer and just kind of the the uh, the religious leaders of the common people, you know, and so they were kind of scattered. You could find them in every town. And that's part of the reason why there are always Pharisees buzzing around the edges wherever Jesus is. Maybe certain Pharisees just followed him everywhere, but I think that partly there just always were Pharisees in whatever community or or uh, uh, place that they were in. As I understand it, anyone could become a Pharisee, any man, just as long as you followed their certain set of rules. Were a Sadducee, very difficult educationally. Yeah. yeah, but anyone, any man could do it. Whereas the Sadducees were family bound, so yes. you couldn't just become a Sadducee. They were they were uh, dynasties. Um, of rulers around the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, kind of on a more like theological level, the Sadducees were kind of the political wheelers and dealers up until the rise of Herod the Great. The high priest is who ruled Judea. And so that, that kind of memory of political power, I think, is still held by the Sadducees. But they also know that Rome has kind of treated Judea weirdly compared to many of its other provinces in terms of letting them continue to use use the temple they don't make them worship the emperor i mean there's some hiccups here and there where they they do some things but generally they're letting them just do their thing um as long as they give offerings on behalf of caesar augustus which i think the jews were maybe not happy to do but fine you know they can they can give offerings on behalf of a gentile ruler but very much like the compromisers like we'll do whatever we need to do in order to keep the temple running and the temple functioning. Like that's, that's what it was all about. Lest we think that they were just purely devoted to the ritual worship of Yahweh. I mean, they, they became enormously wealthy off of the ministry at the temple. Yes. they When Jesus flips the tables, I mean, it is a direct attack on the Sadducees corruption. And we should keep that in mind when we yes. read those stories. And the Sadducees are ultimately the ones who get the balls rolling to kill him. And I mean, there's a reason he was coming after their wallets. The Pharisees, on the other hand, seem to be much more like truly devout people. And I think that we paint them as kind of two-dimensional villains really to our shame and to our detriment because then we don't really understand these stories correctly. Right. They were certainly antagonists, like they were opposing Jesus. Some of them, some of them became followers of Jesus, many of them potentially. Paul himself started his career as a Pharisee. But that they they considered that the kind of the plight of Judea was, and they were right about this, that they were not being faithful to the covenant. And if they could be faithful completely to the covenant, then Yahweh would come through on his end of the deal and yes. save them from the Romans. And so 
and that and and they weren't totally wrong i mean that's again why we can't paint them as two-dimensional villains is they were actually right on a lot of things yeah. i think that the big thing that they were wrong about was who would be able to be completely faithful to the covenant it would never be any of them you know and it would be god's messiah that he sent and of course when the messiah showed up in front of them they couldn't see couldn't see him for who he was um, but I think, yeah, those are, those are generally, again, kind of broad strokes. Those are the differences between the two the Sadducees, rich around the temple in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, poor local, you know, and actually not that far off. And there's a reason why I think so many Pharisees became followers of Jesus as they really weren't that far off from no, they weren't. the kingdom. Yeah, I agree. I agree with all that. Uh, there's a couple stories that I think it'd be good for us to talk about. I know that we're we're running long. We are coming up on time. But um, the two that I had in mind, and I guess I was going to talk about the demons, but we're going to have some of we those. Can, yeah, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, the the next one in in three or four of the gospels, we get the story of the paralyzed man that was healed, and Jesus combines healing and forgiveness, right? And mm-hmm. so he's healing, and a lot of people are wound up about that. Um, but then he, he says, what's harder to say your, your legs are healed or your sins are forgiven. And then he proclaims that his sins are forgiven. What, why is he combining these two things? Why is that? It seems like it's really important to the story because it happens in each gospel. Um, what's your take on, on what Jesus is doing there? Like combining healing and forgiveness. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it, those are just two two ver- two forms of the same thing, right? Deliverance, salvation, rescue. Certainly there are sins that we need to be forgiven from, but also there are sicknesses. I mean, in some cases, literally sicknesses and illnesses that we need to be healed from, but that ultimately sin itself is a sickness. Mortality, in some ways, is the ultimate you know, sickness that we need to be healed from. So I think it's just a way, and we said this earlier, that each of these individual stories are themselves little gospel packets. Yes. And so I think that, I mean, here it is. I mean, that's the whole thing is that this man needs to be not just forgiven of his sins, but also healed of his afflictions. And that, again, both of those are really just two sides of the same thing that Jesus alone has the authority to, to actually do. I, I think within the kind of the narrative flow in the opposition from the religious leaders, Jesus' point is, look... If I can just heal this man, that's the the easy thing, so to speak. But it's actually even easier just to say that his sins are forgiven because I have the authority to do that, you yes. know, because I am the one, I am the place where sins are forgiven. Um, and so it's it's it resonates as well with, especially in the beginning of John's gospel, when Jesus calls himself the temple, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. He's not talking about Herod's temple. You know, he's talking about his own body. Like he is the place where heaven and earth meet. God's power can act, you know, or that human frailty and sin can come before God and be healed. Yeah. That Jesus is where that happens. This has been Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible. Stay hungry, my friends. Ben and Clayton Eat the Bible is a podcast ministry of Calvary Community Church. All contents are under copyright. Our theme music is by Alex Productions. Any thoughts and opinions are solely mine and Clayton's.